Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Welcome to the historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello. Hope you're all doing well. In this December edition of the show, we've got lots coming up. Marcus Pye joins the Historic Racing News Radio Show team and he'll be talking to BP Motorsport Supremo Les Thacker about his 30 years as one of the sport's most influential movers and shakers. He'll talk about some of the teams, the cars, the drivers, plus his lifelong friendship with Sterling Moss. Jim Roller, our man in North America, will talk about growing up in Watkins Glen and just what that meant to have the home of the US Grand Prix right on your doorstep. But first, Paul Jurd is here to talk about a few green shoots appearing from Historic Motorsport, some new dates for 2021, and also some interesting recreations of classic Formula One cars. We've seen the worldwide pandemic have a heavy impact on historic motorsport in 2020, and that effect is rolling into 2021 with regards to the shows and exhibitions that support our sport. Certainly in the UK, the Autosport International Show is the usual season starter with its early January slot, and that now looks like being an online event in March, a sign that organisers can't be confident they will get the paying visitors through the doors their exhibitors need and are moving to protect their events. The Reese Race Retro event at Stony Park, which was scheduled for the first weekend of February, has already been postponed to later in the year, although the sale by Silverstone Auctions that runs alongside the show will take place, so do take the opportunity to check out their websites, there are usually some great race cars tucked away amongst the lots. Outside the UK, Retromobile in Paris is another February event, and a huge one at the Porte de Versailles, with typically over a thousand vehicles on, on display, in excess of 600 exhibitors and a major auction running alongside. Originally set for the start of February, it was then moved to the first weekend of June, and even that date is now in doubt. Although not purely a motorsport show, it has a large racing element and is a major event for many of the major historic race dealers, championship organisers and clubs. We'll let you know when we have the rescheduled dates for these events when we have that information. On a more positive note, motor racing legends have announced an exciting new series for the Ford GT40 in 2021, the Amon Cup. The plan is that there will be two events for these cars next year, both 80-minute two-driver races with 40 minutes of qualifying, so plenty of track time for the owners of these cars. And given how they have dominated the Spa six hours in recent years, in 2019, 12 of the first 13 places on the grids went to the GT40s, there is a potential for the series to provide some great racing. The series is for cars running to a pre-1966 specification, with MRL being supported by DK Engineering in this venture. Chris Amon won Le Mans alongside Bruce McLaren in 1966 in the Mark II version of the GT40 and members of the Amon family will be at every round to present the awards. The cars will first be in action at May's Donington Historic Festival and tickets are now on sale for that event and then at MRL's meeting on the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit at the end of October. Hall and Hall have been a staple of the historic racing scene for many years, supporting and running a wide range of cars and they've recently announced some intriguing new additions to their business repertoire. Firstly came news of reduction run of Six Van Wals, a very successful British Formula 1 car of the 1950s that won the first ever Constructors' Championship in 1958. Hall and Hall are working with the current owners of the Van Wal name and the cars will be built to that 1958 specification, a, cut, a year that saw wins for Sterling Moss at Zandvoort, Porto in Portugal and in Morocco, while Tony Brooks was first home in Spa, the Nürburgring and Monza. That was enough to give Van Wal that Constructors' title ahead of Ferrari although the Italian team's Mike Hawthorne beat Moss to the driver's crown by one point. The cars will feature freshly built examples of Van, Van Wall's 2.5-litre four-cylinder engine, which uh, in final form offered up around 270 brake horsepower, and the plan is that the cars should be eligible for historic events. Tempted? Well, one will be retained by Van Wall and two are thought to be already sold, so you need to move quickly and also have possibly a spare £1.5 million to hand. That news was quickly followed by the announcement that Hall & Hall would also be producing three Mark I BRM V16s, a car from slightly earlier in the 1950s. At one point the great hope of British motorsport, 
The cars featured a complex 16-cylinder 1.5-litre supercharged engine that proved temperamental and unreliable, but could produce a stunning 440 brake horsepower in its latter form although ultimately the team had originally been looking for 600 horsepower from their complex beast. By the time the car was approaching any form of reliability, the rules were changing to the 2.5 litre formula, by which point Sterling Moss had declared the car the worst he had ever driven, with unpredictable handling, poor steering. The powerful engine was apparently very peaky and he felt there wasn't enough room for the driver to do his work. All this in a car several years into its development. There is currently only one Mark I in existence, and if Hall and Hall, who have a long-standing history with BRM, can work their magic and add some reliability. Stories still persist of how amazing these cars sounded at full chat. We mentioned several events earlier that are in doubt, but one that has been announced is an auto jumble at Shelsley Walsh in Worcestershire on May the 15th. Shelsley is of course one of the oldest motorsport venues in the world and still uses the original hill climb course that saw competition back in 1905. And I have to say it's to my utter shame that I've yet to visit the venue and I hope to put that right as soon as possible. But if this event can help them gain some valuable revenue after what has been a difficult year, we wish them well. And finally, the New Zealand Grand Prix has never been a part of the Formula One World Championship, but has been an important event over the years and contested by some very famous drivers. And the 66th running is at Hampton Downs Motorsport Park on the 22nd to the 24th of January. So, you quite rightly ask, what is this to do with historic motorsport? As a knowledgeable amongst you will know that it now forms part of the Castrol Toyota Racing Series, which is a single-seater Tata's chassis powered by a 1.8-litre Toyota engine. And if you mentally picture a modern Formula 3 car, you won't be far off the mark. The historic element, and I'm not sure I'm brave enough to say that to his face, comes from the first driver to enter for the event, a certain Kenny Smith. We've mentioned Kenny's exploits on our website and Facebook page before, and he is a regular in the Tasman Revival Series for Formula 5000 cars. But this will be Smith's 50th New Zealand Grand Prix, a quite staggering figure and one that actually takes a bit of thinking about. In the early days, he competed against the likes of Sterling Moss, Jack Brabham, Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon in the series. And Smith is one of five drivers to have won it three times. Moss and Brabham also have that accolade. Now 79 years old, Smith is still a pace setter in a Formula 5000 car and has competed for 63 years without missing a race season. When asked why, Smith simply replied, I just love driving. I've no expectations, but we could hassle one or two of them. I'm 79 now and I haven't lost the edge or the speed. If we ran Formula 5000 cars for the Grand Prix and you dragged these other kids in, I'm sure I could win the race. The current cars are stiff, rigid, hard to drive. You have to change your whole driving style, but I'm happy to do that to compete and be in the Grand Prix. Given that this is a series won in recent season by drivers such as Lando Norris and Lance Stroll, Kenny is really in amongst the hot shoes and we hope they appreciate who they're racing against. We'll let you know how he gets on. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Do you know, Paul, I love that idea of a 79-year-old out there against all the all the young hot shoes and everything else. And these days, people are carting at six and they're going through all the various different formulae and everything else. If you're not at the absolute front of the Grand Prix by the time you're 25, you're too old. I think you're exactly right. And, and how things have changed. If you remember that um, Fangio was almost 40 when he raced in his first Grand Prix, the British Grand Prix in 1950. You know, he wouldn't even be considered for a frontline race seat, probably in GTs these days, unless he was bringing a bucket load of money. No, that's true. I mean, he would be thought of as, as a gentleman driver, wouldn't he, at, at that age? And it is crazy that these people very often have only ever known motorsport, that that they've their offspring of karting dads and everything that that means, and that they their their kindergarten is the is the paddock at Rye House or some other um, kart track, and then they go straight into the junior formulae and straight on through and it's yeah it's an odd one i i don't get it but but all all credit to him for for still being out there with uh with the whole thing at, at 79 years of age love it absolutely love it that, that is amazing I, I i'd hope i'm that quick and competitive at 79 because i'm actually nowhere near it now so i know i need to improve <laughs> yes you're gonna have to improve in the next i was gonna say few years but i don't think i mean that <laughs> oh, trust me i've got 20 years to work on that one yeah well there you are then it's uh bags of time now i've known les thacker for probably 
probably 45 years, I, I imagine. Um, Les has, was never a driver or a team manager. He wasn't any of those things. He certainly wasn't a team owner. But he joined BP straight after the army in 1963. And uh, he was competitions manager by the early 70s. Now, you have to bear in mind that at those times, it was really pre-mega tobacco money. So the people who were spending the really big money in motorsport were the oil companies. And BP was very much amongst those. And they made a huge investment in bikes and cars, motorbikes and cars. Uh, and Les was at the front of all of that. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, he has hundreds of stories. I mean, you, you just sit down with Les and he'll he'll tell you all sorts of things like uh, like you wouldn't believe. He was personal friends with people like Nelson Piquet, Barry Sheen, Johnny Dumfries. And in particular, he was best buddies with Sterling Moss for over 40 years. So we asked Marcus Pye to sit down with Les, um, pre-lockdown that is, and uh, and have a chat about just some of the stories that Les has to tell. Today I find myself in rural Surrey uh, with one of the great enthusiasts of motorsport for the last half century or so, uh, and also one of the most influential people within racing for, for many a year, with Les Thacker. Uh, from uh, Shomex and BP, uh, to give it its complete uh, title. Um, Les, walking around your uh, lovely house here today, I've found a superb photograph of Chris Amon in the Alton Park Gold Cup in the Ferrari. little bit crossed up, absolutely superb, coming into your feet on the apex, and uh, it's clear you're just a total petrolhead. Well, it, that's a quite a good intro, how I got into motorsport, actually, Marcus, in terms of... Um, I left the army in 63 and was looking uh, round uh, for a job to do. Uh, today, of course, uh, youngsters would instantly aim for I the IT industry. In those days, the go-go place to go was um, the oil industry, petroleum industry. So I wrote to a couple of companies, uh, SO and Shellmex and BP, as it then was, um, seeing if uh, I was employable. And uh, fortunately, Shellmex and BP said yes. Part of the process was a six-month uh, training session, uh, and part of that training session was a month at a huge installation, which is now part of the Chelsea Village, of course. Um, Tongue-in-cheek, I asked the boss of the labs about, uh, a bit of a young petrol head in those days, about uh, would it be possible to go to one of the meetings. Quite to my surprise, he said to me, there's a big Formula One meeting going on at Snetterdon this weekend, Make sure you're in the Castle Hotel at Norwich for breakfast and somebody there will sort you out with passes. I unbelievable. So, of course, I made sure I was up at uh, Snetterton or Norwich, the Castle Hotel, 8 o'clock on the Sunday morning, walked in and all round the breakfast table, Innes Island, Graham Hill, Jim Clark and various other uh, top Formula One drivers having breakfast. They sort of said, sit down and have breakfast with us. I, just unbelievable for a, what, 20, 21-year-old. So um, that's how I started in terms of being connected. Uh, I was then into photography in a big way as well. Another stroke of luck, I wrote to the BARC, um, whose secretary was uh, John Morgan, saying, can I have a press pass? Again, tongue-in-cheek. And lo and behold... A press pass turned up for um, uh, one of the Goodwood meetings. Uh, took some photographs, sent them off to John. He started using them in uh, various BARC publications. Every time I wrote for a press pass, whether it be a Grand Prix or whatever, all of a sudden I was a photographer who, who apparently they knew. Well, then in 74, about six or seven years later, uh, BP suddenly decided that they wanted to... Uh, get back into motorsport, not on the basis that had been done before, which was very much a corporate uh, exercise, but purely marketing-based with product. Uh, so motorsport had to sell product. 
and lo and behold, my name pops up and uh, I was asked if I'd like to uh, start up a division for motorsport again. How lucky can you get, Marcus? Is the Pope a Catholic? Absolutely, you were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it got even better than that because I was given a free hand. I mean, it was starting off anew. Um, and the first meeting I went to of any significance was a bike meeting, funny enough, in the Isle of Man. And the Isle of Man, as you know, the TTs in June uh, with the Manx Grand Prix in September. And um, BP, or Shelmex and BP, still had this team of uh, drivers and uh, equipment and all the rest of it uh, operating out of the uh, base at uh, Townmead Road in Wandsworth. And the Isle of Man TT has to have a whole infrastructure built around it for refueling and all the rest of it so for three or four weeks you know the whole team used to go over to the Isle of Man to uh, set up all the kit there um, and um, you know associate themselves with all the competitors so I took this as an exercise to go over and have a look at how motorsport was being done by uh, the competitors and it suddenly dawned on me that um, there was probably what a thousand competitors over there bikes, tie cars and all the rest of it and every one of them on the fairings had uh, a decal or they called in those days stickers uh, and in fact they were lost you could have a Shell or a Castrol or a Dunlop uh, Ferrodo all these uh, stickers on the bikes and in fact you never saw any of them it was like a wallpaper and uh, I thought, well, there's, there's not much use joining this exercise because uh, all that's going to happen is you're going to put another sticker on the bike. So big risk. I took the decision for, it would have been 75, the full season in 75, that we wouldn't go ahead and do as the other oil companies were doing, uh, having lots and lots of contracts. We'd pick out half a dozen on the car side, half a dozen on the bike side, and make them totally BP. Um, you know, I introduced um, BP leathers uh, for the riders. They all used to be run around in black leathers, if you remember, in those days. Absolutely. Uh, on the car side, we, we equipped our contracted drivers with those Chevron... Um, with the green and yellow green Chevrons, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it got to the stage where you had some... Uh, really top-class competitors in various formulae coming to want to be associated with BP um, because, uh, A, there wasn't a lot of them. You know, they weren't up against a lot of other people. But, B, there was some sort of exclusivity in it, which um, leads me on to a lovely story about Sterling, actually, and, and advertising with this agency. Um, Sterling had been uh, a long, long, long-term uh, contracted driver with BP. I mean, he and Fangio were contracted way back in the very early 50s to BP. Um, and um, he was still with us when, when, when I took over. And uh, I went to this agency and uh, uh, said, uh, you know, how about we use Sterling? And in those days, before uh, all the Adobe-type software you have today where uh, nothing is drawn, it's all done digitally on uh, computers... Uh, the scans that they put in front of you were always hand-drawn sort of cartoons. And so they, they went through this series of, sort of five or six uh, ideas about using Sterling. And they came to the last one, and all there was was Sterling's bald head from the sort of there up. And um, I said, God, God, I said, you know, he's a mate. I can't show him this. And they said, no, 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 it's a great idea. He'll love it. I said, no, 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 I they said, well, you go through the rest of the five or six with him. But, you know, do us a favour, take this one as well. So anyway, pop round to Sterling's, you know, to uh, uh, have coffee and sort of discuss this advertising campaign with him. And I kept this one right to the end. And I'm terribly embarrassed. I said, oh, Sterling, I said, Look, I'm very sorry about this. Agency idea, of course, nothing to do with me, you know. I'm not very happy about this. He said, I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, and that was that was the winning advert. It came up with this fantastic uh, uh, headshot of Sterling from there up, 
but he's so recognisable, isn't he? You know, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's just how it is. Uh, and again, this this sort of linked the product to a personality, but not in this success way. Which right. um, and Sterling loves his number seven. So was it a, a coincidence that VF Seven became that? I well, we, we uh, when. Uh, I don't think it did, actually. I don't know. God knows how they came up with that idea. I, I wasn't privy to that. But, of course, we, the, the uh, Tolman car, which we talked about earlier, um, the winning car was number seven because we could actually pick the race number in those days. So, uh, and that was totally made out like a VF7 can, really. But, um, it was. Not. Do you know that's 40 years ago? Um, I was at Goodwood for the launch of that team, as I'm sure you were on the same day. We're all there, and we wrote a great story about it for Autosport magazine. It made the front cover. The car looked a million dollars. And, of course, at the start of the season, it was Derek Warwick and, um, and Stephen South uh, going to drive the cars. And then Stephen had his accident uh, and, and other um, situations sort of um, unfolded, and Brian Henton was parachuted in and ended up well, winning that championship. That's, a, that's a, another story altogether, actually. Um, the um, this uh, Stephen, I, I think, was probably, in terms of raw talent, the most talented driver I ever had, I had ever signed up. Um, he was a very, very quiet character, and you could walk around uh, on the morning of a race, for example, at Snetterton Formula 3, you could walk around the paddock with him in the morning, and you... You know, you sensed whether he was going to blitz everybody or it was going to be another day. But if if he was on it, nobody could get near him. The guy who was running, um, I can't remember which Brabham it was. I think it was uh, Jeff Brabham. Is Jeff the oldest? Um, uh, Jeff's the oldest. Yeah, yeah, it was Jeff Brabham. Very famous Australian um, team manager called Pee Wee Siddle. Greg Siddle. Greg yeah. Siddle, yeah. yeah. Pee Wee. And... Um, uh, Stephen was really on it uh, one uh, one Sunday at uh, Snetterton in the Formula 3. And, uh, I mean, nobody got with him, well, country mile of him in practice. And Pee Wee came up to me and said, Gordon Bennett, Les, uh, you know, we may as well send everybody home, you know, this is ridiculous. But that was it. If he was on it, he was away. And... Um, um, but that was a very sad episode, really, because um, part of the deal I had with Tolman's when we... Um, and Autosport ought to be congratulated on this because Autosport found out about it very early on. Um, I think I started talking to um, Alex Hawkridge in September of 79. Um, and, of course, everything was under wraps about they are building their own car and everything. Yeah, and you'd been, at that point, uh, supporting Derek Warwick with the um, sort of independent march, hadn't you? That's it. Yes. Uh, awful march. The 792. <laughs> Hideous and not very good. Although oh, Mark Ciro did manage to win the championship. And he won. did, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think there was a lot of modifications went on in, uh, in his particular car. Um, but anyway, part of the deal was I said to Alex, look, um, we've got to have Stephen South and Derek Warwick. And he said, Stephen South, absolutely no problem. Uh, I don't want Warwick, not very keen on Warwick. And I said, well, that's the deal. You're going to have Derek Warwick as well. He said, well, he's a crasher. I said, no, he's not a crasher. I said, it's, um, you know, that's, uh, we had a bad season. Um, anyway, he took Derek and was blown over by Derek, obviously, because Derek did a fantastic job. Um, but the story about Stephen, I can't go into the real story about it, but what actually happened you can was... by the book. So Yeah, by the book, yeah. Um, and um, most of it is true, but um, uh, it, it, that was very, very sad because he went to um, uh, the States, uh, drove for Paul Newman in Can-Am and had that horrendous accident when everything stuck wide open and he went yeah. straight on in. Um, um, yeah, it's just so sad. I, um, Paul Newman was fantastic. He, um, after I think Stephen was what three or four months in hospital while they sorted him out, and obviously he lost he lost his leg in that uh, accident. Um, I picked Stephen up at the airport when he flew home with his father, and uh, it was just so sad. It was mm. 
because he was a very, very, very talented lad. So there's fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, I'm absolutely intrigued by uh, James Hunt because having had various run-ins with him over the years, (laughs) good and bad, (laughs) um, he was just an extraordinary character. Well, French Grand Prix, I'm pretty sure it was uh, about 78, something like that. And by then, James was doing the uh, inter-round commentaries with Murray, which was an interesting pairing. What a uh, dynamic. <laughs> anyway, um, um, Murray, we, were de- we got down to the French Grand Prix at Ricard uh, on the Thursday. And strangely enough, all the teams stayed at Banlon. And uh, I don't think it had anything to do with the Banlon Beach uh, being ba- Banyol. totally... Banyol. Banyol being yeah. totally topless. I think it had something to do with it. Sure it did. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, Murray grabs me um, on the Thursday, late Thursday afternoon and said, are you doing anything, are you doing anything tonight? So I said, well, not too sure, uh, actually, Murray. He said, would you do me a favour? He said, uh, I got two BBC executives, he said, accountants over, he said, uh, just looking at what we're doing. And he said, uh, entertaining them to dinner, he said, uh, with James. He said, would you come along and tell a few stories? So I said, well, yeah, OK, Murray. So anyway, Murray had sorted out this beautiful restaurant, you know, uh, um, on, on, the, uh, the, on the pavement, you know, lovely food and all the rest of it. And I always remember these two BP, uh, BBC executives had suits on. You know, I mean, we're on the south of France. It's slightly um, incongruous. Though. Yeah, so ed- anyway, and they were both Scotsmen and very dour, you know. And uh, so uh, there was no James. So I was, <laughs> I'm sitting opposite these two executives from the BBC, and Murray's sort of uh, in between them. And um, uh, so we have the first course, and... Uh, Murray's getting a bit anxious because there's still no uh, James and he's making excuses like, well, you know, James is probably doing his homework, which I thought rather funny. But um, uh, anyway, uh, I was beginning to run out of stories. We'd gone through the main course and we just about get to the pud. And in the distance, I can see James with two rather uh, attractive young ladies on each arm walking along the pavement. I thought, Gordon Bennett. Uh, fortunately, the BBC executives had their back to him, and I sort of kicked Murray, and Murray looked back and went white, you know, absolutely. And James walked straight past, didn't recognise any of us, and uh, the BBC executives didn't uh, uh, didn't recognise the back of him, and um, it was just extraordinary. But that was James. I mean, uh, uh, he was... Uh, oh, yeah. well, I'd never seen a chat like that. He said, no, no, no. He said, I just had them done. He said, it, uh, they, they like the idea as well. So I said, well, God, they look great. I said, I wouldn't mind one of those. He said, oh, you like one, old boy? I said, yeah, well, yes, if I could still. He said, uh, what's your favourite number? So I said, well, same as you, seven. He said, yeah, well, I just started this one. Hang on. So he got to 0000007 check, wrote on it, and handed it to me, and it said, pay Les Thacker, and he said, don't cash that in, and it had one P on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still got that check somewhere. I must get it framed, but um, uh, that was Stirl. There's another lovely story about Stirl. We were uh, uh, going to open a motor show or something in, uh, I think it was Norwich. Anyway, it was a train from uh, Liverpool Street, and... Uh, uh, Racing drivers are the most unreliable. They are never on time. So I always used to allow a big time envelope where anything we were doing was still. Um, and, um, I mean, even if we were driving to uh, a race meeting somewhere, it'd always leave an hour because uh, it'd never be, never be ready. Anyway, I got, on, I got a taxi from the office round to... Uh, Shepherd Street, where Stell's house was, to pick him up. Susie comes to the door and says, um, it's a little bit late at the moment. I said, oh, all right. So I got rid of the taxi driver. And uh, about half an hour later, we were ready to go. I said, I'll get a taxi. And Sterling said, no, we'll go on a scooter. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Gordon Bennett. Last thing you want. Yeah. 
So uh, I said, look, because I'm in a pinstripe suit ready to go to this thing, you know. And he said, uh, no, it's all right, boy. Uh, it's all right, old boy. We'll take the scooter. Much better. Um, I said, but I've got no kit still. He said, that's not a problem. So older viewers will recognise this phrase. He came out, gave me this Flasher's Mac. Now, a Flasher's Mac was <laughs> what those... Uh, strange men used to wear in Charing Cross Road and suddenly open it and they... Uh, Different times, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. That was where the term flashing came in. So he gives me this flashing Mac. And I said, I haven't got a helmet still. So he said, oh, I have Susie's, which was a deer stalker helmet. You know, absolutely ridiculous. So I climb on this scooter um, and uh, we get down the end of Shepherd Street and uh, Stell says, um, I think we're could be running out of fuel, old boy. Oh, my <laughs> God, I bet it. So he pulls alongside a taxi driver, and everybody knows Sterling, you know. And uh, then I think everybody knew about the scooter as well. And he said to the cabbie, oh, morning, cabbie, he said, do you know where there's a garage open? I can get some two-stroke fuel. And the cabbie driver said, oh, yes, Mr Moss, Mr Moss. So we fill up with fuel and uh, head off for a... Liverpool Street Station again, and by now yeah, it's touch and go. Get to the end of Regent Street, and he leans round and he says, "Get off!" I said, "What?" He said, "Get off!" I said, "What?" He said, "Get off the scooter!" So I thought, "God!" So I'm in this flasher's mat, deer stalker helmet, <laughs> amongst you know everybody trying looking to get, like a prize yeah, goon, <laughs> trying to get to the office. So I get off the scooter, <sighs> and we push it across this zebra crossing with all these people crossing. What the hell's going on? Get to another zebra crossing, push that across that one, and he says to me, right, get on. And, of course, I suddenly realised what he'd done was he knew everything so well. We'd missed all the no right turns, no left turns, pushing this damn scooter. Anyway, get to Liverpool Street, just get on the train. I mean, parking the thing was another thing. And the train was one of those um, old ones. You remember the separate compartments where... Yep, absolutely. Go into the... uh, our reserve seats, and uh, all on our own, just get out of Liverpool Street, and a door opens, a steward there says, good morning, Mr Moss. Now, he didn't know, he'd never met Sterling before. Uh, Morning, Mr Moss, would you like coffee? But Sterling was just instantly recognisable, you know. uh, I mean, over over 40-odd years, you saw the best and the worst of uh, of motorsport at all levels, and... um, a fantastic position to have um, had a career of, of that magnitude. I think it's amazing, remarkable. Joining us for the first of a two-part feature about Watkins Glen, we have our North America editor, Jim Roller. Mr Roller, how are things in the beautiful North Carolina countryside? Well, we're uh, bucketing down rain today here uh, on Lake Norman, but other than that, we're getting ready for the Christmas holidays and... Wearing our masks and hiding under the desk so that COVID doesn't get <laughs> Yeah, we're all trying to do that, I think. Now, you and I have known each other a long time and that both of us grew up in a kind of motorsport environment. But you're growing up in a very, very specifically Watkins Glen environment. So it was in your blood from a very early age. It really was. I grew up in the Finger Lakes region. The first 13, 14 years of my life, I was in uh, a town called Horseheads, New York, near Elmira, which was about 20 minutes away from Watkins Glen. And my parents were avid motorsports fans. So we were always followers of things going on at the racetrack. And apparently, even before I was born, my parents used to go to the old racetrack when they used to race in the streets. Uh, right after my oldest siblings were born. So it's uh, to say that it is in my blood would be a bit of an understatement, actually. Uh, it uh, <laughs> was kind of preordained, I guess. You talk about the road course, which was a very different place from the circuit we know now. It was. Uh, racing started in Watkins Glen after World War II in 1948. After the war, pre-war, there was the Vanderbilt Cup and all of that stuff, but that was all downstate. That was down on Long Island. And then 
from the end of the war, 46, 47, the beginning of 48, there were there was some road racing revival going on, but they were what they called a, literally estate races because it was the the rich who had the big estates would actually hold the races on what was, for lack of a better term, their driveway. And these never really caught on. And then in 1948, um, local uh, officials, uh, Cameron Argensinger, and a name you'll be familiar with, he wasn't local, but he was a, a mover and shaker in the racing world, Alec Ullman, the man who oh, yeah. went on to start the 12 hours of Sebring and uh, racing at Sebring in, in uh 1952 uh, was instrumental in starting road racing on the streets of of Watkins Glen. Now, just put me right here, Jim, because like many people on this side of the Atlantic, we tend to think of New York as being New York City. But upstate New York is a very long way from New York City, isn't it? Oh, yes. This is probably about a seven-hour drive on the interstate from from New York City. Um, this is this, that's a little bit of a bone of contention for us upstaters, as we like to call ourselves, because uh, many people who live in Westchester County, which is a suburb of New York City, call themselves from upstate New York. No, upstate New York is anything from Albany North or Albany uh, West, which is if you look at the map of New York, it's that extension that goes uh, over towards the Great Lakes. So that's upstate New York. And that's where the Finger Lakes are. And they're easy to see on a map because it looks like somebody has placed a big hand right there. And that's where the glaciers came down and actually carved out the, the Finger Lakes. Uh, Seneca Lake is the, the largest of those. And that is at the southern tip of that is where Watkins Glen is. So we're not talking about being close to downtown Manhattan or anything like that. No, 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 not indeed. Not indeed. You grew up in that area, so presumably you went to school there. Yes, I graduated from Watkins Glen High School in 1977. And uh, we used to actually get the weekend of the Grand Prix, which was always in October, which was great for me because it was around my birthday. And it was always around my birthday. So that was always a very easy Christmas present was to get tickets to go to the race. So um we used to do that a lot, but when I was in school, we used to get the Friday of Grand Prix weekend off and go up to the racetrack and sell programs. Every year, the senior class took a trip to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and the seniors would enlist underclassmen to form these teams that would go out and sell programs because the senior that sold the most programs won the won, won a prize. So. Starting out at, a, at an early age, we were, you know, we would spread out over the racetrack and I would use the programs as a way to sneak into the pits. I've, I've been doing that most of my life and still, still do from time to time. Well, I discovered very quickly if I covered my, my uh, ticket up with, my, with the programs and, and, and walked like I knew where I was going and just, you know, programs, programs, and people just didn't stop me. And the next thing I know, I found myself standing in the pits. They really, therefore, you were there from the beginning of what we might call the purpose-built racetrack. Oh, yeah, because the road races were in 1948. They started through the yeah. streets. There was a 6.6-mile circuit that actually went down Main Street, uh, went up the hill by the gorge, went through the state park, which is at the top of the gorge, and back down this frighteningly long downhill section that ended in a 90-degree left 90 degree right back onto Main Street. And they raced there from 1948 to 1952, 1951, 1952. I think 52 was the year that they had the, uh, it was a, a very sad uh, event. Was, and there's an old wives' tale in the community about how uh, there, there was an accident and some um, spectators were injured and one 12 year old lad was was tragically killed and there were the wife's tale is that he was the son of a dignitary who was in a place where he wasn't supposed to be well that, that could be nothing further from the truth it was a spectator area and the poor little guy was actually sitting on the curb uh, between his dad's legs and uh, the accident happened 10 other people were injured his older brother was injured very seriously but uh, the young man passed away and that caused an outcry, as you might uh, conceive, and mm. state legislators actually tried to ban motor racing on the streets in the state of New York and that sort of stuff. 
but that facilitated a move up onto the plateau that overlooked uh, the community of Watkins Glen, where the current racetrack sits. It was a much, much different layout than, than what we have right now. Uh, and they raced up there from, oh, probably 53. 53 was, in fact, the first race there. And that circuit, I think, was, uh, I think that was about uh, two miles long. How far away was the new track from the original public road circuit? It was probably, as the crow flies, a couple miles by roads, probably oh, right, three, okay. four, three, four miles up on the hill that overlooks you from, from that plateau, you can see the lake and you can see for a ways. And it's the, it's those beautiful vistas that you see when you see coverage of the, of the racetrack currently on, on television now, but that circuit was, uh, was put in and then they raced there until what we now know is the Grand Prix circuit was constructed. And that is the two point, the famous 2.3 mile road course that, that so many of us, so many of us remember from the from the early days. Uh, 1953 was when they when they um, started racing up on the hill, and that uh, that circuit uh, opened up with a 150 mile. Are you ready for this NASCAR race? NASCAR. NASCAR was even then racing at Watkins Glen. So, what year was this? That was. Uh, 1957. Wow, so that's in the very early days of NASCAR then. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, names like Fireball Roberts. Uh, Buck Baker actually <laughs> won the, the NASCAR Grand National Race uh, over Fireball Roberts and Tiny Lund. So that was uh, the first professional race was uh, was a NASCAR race. They But they had been racing up on the hill for a couple of years and then when they opened the the Grand National, uh, the, the it was actually dubbed the Watkins Glen Grand Prix Racecourse, and it was two point three miles long, and it is still the bones of of what we have today. And in fact, other than the uh, bus stop chicane, which was added, that is the circuit that NASCAR currently runs on today. Is basically the shape. It's been altered a little bit, but it's the basic shape of the original two point three mile circuit. And then in uh, 1973, 74, the, the racetrack was extended. The boot was added to its 3.337 mile configuration that the road racing fans will remember as uh, and is still used to this day for uh, IMSA races and any sort of road racing events other than NASCAR. Um, and in fact, the IndyCars uh, would occasionally run the, the old circuit as well. Uh, they did that in the 80s before the racetrack ha had to shut down and and they've been back and run what was the NASCAR configuration. Interestingly, uh, it's as typical of American road courses, it's a, a clockwise circuit, but NASCAR, when they raced it, raced it uh, anti-clockwise. So um, that, that was another unique aspect of that first NASCAR race uh, in 1957. Now, that's interesting because also in 1957, you had the Monzonapolis Race of Two Worlds, as it was called, where they ran around the banking at Monza with a mixture of Indianapolis cars and some various different hodgepodge of various different European race cars. And they ran around the banking at Monza in an anti-clockwise direction, which is the only times that it ever happened in 57 and 58 when that particular race series was running. That I've just had a thought. There's a bit of a challenge here that can anybody out there think of another race circuit that has hosted in roughly the current iteration NASCAR and Formula One. Let us know at Hist Racing News. Love to know what your thoughts are on that. Any circuit that has hosted NASCAR and Formula One would be uh, a bit of a challenge for everybody there. But tell me, Jim, what was it that triggered the move to Formula One? 
How did it become a Grand Prix circuit? Well, Alec Goldman and others, again, that name keeps coming up, um, tried to run Formula One cars. First, they ran them at Sebring. Then the following year, that was uh, 1950 or 1949. Um, and then they ran at Riverside, and neither of those races were successful. So Ullman called his good friend Cameron Argensinger who, uh, and Tony Valent, who were the uh, people that were the movers behind Watkins Glen and the move up to the hill and the use of, of the 2.3-mile circuit. And they floated the idea, and it was a success. The race every year, as I said, was in the fall. That's probably one of the most picturesque areas of the United States in the fall. And it became a fixture. The other thing that was important was that it was one of the richest paying formula at the time, one of the richest paying Formula One races there was. So it was worth it for the Formula One teams to get themselves to America. And in, in later years, once the sport became a little more organized, they would combine the race with Canada and Mexico. So they had a, a good reason. They, they could split the cost of the travel through three events. But the Watkins Glen purse was for many, many, many years the biggest purse in Formula One. So this is pre-Bernie and therefore pre the, the circus where it was all agreed in advance that each individual circuit would therefore have their own agreement with the individual entrance, presumably. Uh, yes, that, that, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, very much, very much pre-Bernie. Your family was very, very involved, wasn't it, with, with the racetrack? And, and there's, there's the story of, of your mother's baking, which I think seemed to remember you telling me one time. Yes, in fact, we ran a feature on a historic racing news dot com. My, my, as I said at the top when we started discussing this, that it was kind of preordained that I would be involved in motorsports. My family doctor, our general pr practitioner, was Francis Ward, Doctor Francis Ward, who was the track physician, and so at a very early age, uh, he. Uh, included me in some of his forays to the racetrack and that sort of stuff. And every year he hosted a party for the world champion because, as I said, the race was always in late September, early October. So by then, normally the Formula One world champion was crowned. And so he would host a party honoring the that year's world champion. Well, my mother... Uh, her hobby, one of her hobbies, she was a great cook, as you could probably attest from my size, but um, <laughs> she, uh, one of her hobbies was she liked to make cakes, and they were very elaborate wedding cakes and birthday cakes for people. Well, she made Dr. Ward a birthday cake. He was very impressed, and he asked her, could you make a cake that looked like a race car? And right. she said, well, of course I can, because <laughs> that's what you do, right? So uh, he sent her photos. Uh, 1963 was the first year that it, it happened. It would have been around my fourth birthday. I have pictures of, of, of many of the cakes, and you can see those on historicracingnews.com. And she, from 1963 to 1970, Jochen Rintz, uh posthumous world championship was the last cake that she made. Uh, she made a cake for every world champion that was a replica of that world champion's car. And she labored many, many hours to perfect uh, British Racing Green for the Lotus cars. And then the yellow that went around the nose and that in the, in the, in the mid to later sixties and, and that sort of stuff. And then the, uh, the, or the, uh, the kind of red orange of the gold leaf. Those were those were those were big challenges because those were not colors that yeah. you could just you know she had to hand mix up that icing, and my dad being a, a an engineer, of course he couldn't leave well enough alone. The first cake was made. Uh, the, 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 the wheels of the first cake were actually cake, but in subsequent years um, he actually made my mom a board that was in the general shape of a of a Formula One car of the of the era and attached lawnmower wheels to it. 
And so she would build the cake uh, on that board. And then there are pictures of the drivers actually pushing the cake back and forth across the, Dr. Ward's kitchen floor, much to the chagrin of Mrs. Ward, who was uh, frightfully afraid the cake would uh, come to a horrible demise. So, so we are talking about world champions and their teammates pushing your mother's cake around Dr. Ward's kitchen. Uh, Graham Hill and Jim Clark. <laughs> oh, you may have heard brilliant. of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, we can't talk about Watkins Glen without talking about uh, the accidents to Helmut Koenig and particularly, of course, to Francois Sever. And those were really the beginnings of the end of, of the Grand Prix part of, of Watkins Glen's history. Unfortunately, yes. In 73, uh, Jackie Stewart and Sever Stewart came as the presumptive world champion. This was going to be his last race. Sever was set to become the number one at Tyrrell. He didn't know because Stewart and Ken had kept uh, what is virtually impossible, <laughs> that secret. Uh, I don't <laughs> know uh, how they – well, the, they just kept it to each other, and I think that's how they were able to keep the secret. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Severe, they had – there was an S's going up the hill, and uh, Severe um, went off and punched through the Armco uh, in a very similar manner to what happened to Roman Grosjean recently, and mm -hmm. only there was no halo. And so the outcome was as you might predict. The following season in 74, the exact same thing happened to Helmut Koenig, only his happened at the end of the back straightaway. His was even even more so like uh, Grosjean's because he went straight into the Armco at the end of, end of the racetrack. That facilitated the Schechter chicane and some other changes to the racetrack that ended up costing the Watkins Glen Grand Prix Corporation tons and tons and tons of money which combined with some other ill-fated things, uh, really, as you said, was was the beginning of the end for Grand Prix racing. It took quite a while for it to actually happen, but as looking back on history, that's when the first the first problems started to raise their head. And it was the this all came on the heels of the expansion. So they were pretty leveraged because of municipal bonds and that sort of thing to pay for the expansion of the racetrack to the three point three seven mile circuit and and then had to go ahead and, and make some more changes to it and probably that the, the racetrack is now on about its seventh configuration if you if you look at all the little tweaks they added the chicane they took chicane away they added the bus stop chicane at the end of the back straightaway for the nascar cars um you know that was that was a, the spot where tommy kendall um unfortunately uh, it didn't end his career, but it, it virtually ended his career when he uh, went off the end of the back straightaway in the Intrepid uh, in 1984, 85. So, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, Tom, related to that. I think it was Tommy later than that. that so. yeah, Tommy carries that to this day, doesn't he? Um, he sure does. He sure uh, does. Those injuries. Uh, yep. But um, obviously, you, as I say, you promised us all sorts of tales of uh, the behind the scenes Activities oh yes, next month I'm looking forward to that. Next um, month we'll have international intrigue. We'll have mysterious <laughs> fires. We'll have we'll have auctions on the courthouse steps. It's uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be appointment listening. We'll talk again in January. I'm looking forward to it. Your your motor racing year, Paul, has been fairly uh, limited, like the rest of us. I think so, to be quite honest. Normally, I'd expect sort of be 20 weekends in a year at a race circuit. And I was, I managed four this year. And to be quite honest, I was quite fortunate, I think, compared to a lot of people. And I was only at those four meetings because with most paddocks now not allowing spectators, I was actually working at those meetings. So uh, I was there and actually able to see some racing. Yeah, likewise. I, I did two car shows which i've thoroughly enjoyed and we'll uh, we'll find space uh, next year for a discussion about those i went to salon privé at uh, blenheim palace and the concourse of elegance at hampton court palace so that was my 
dose of culture in both of those. The other two motorsport events that I got to, I was commentating at both of them. So that was one at Goodwood and uh, for the spring sprint for the GRRC and uh, and for the Thruxton Historic Festival, um, which uh, seems a very, very long time ago now. But it's really odd, isn't it? I mean, I, I was brought up in a in a motorsport family one way or another and we moved around the UK a lot um, mostly with my dad's job uh, because he was uh, he was being fast tracked through the company and that he was moved from here to there so we rarely spent less than about three years anywhere and that my early my earliest memories of living in Chester and of course we were about a 15 minute drive from Alton Park which was my my first ever race. Um, we then lived in Bristol, and we went occasionally to Castle Coombe, more often to Goodwood. So that's why Goodwood probably is quite close to my heart. Uh, and then we moved to the outskirts of London, and that my home circuit, if you like, became Brands Hatch, uh, and regularly went to Brands Hatch. And then when I got to the stage of learning to drive uh, it was where i used to dash off but i've been going there since i was a kid and in fact i was thinking the other day that 2020 is the first time that i haven't been to brands hatch at some stage during the year since 1966 so that's 44 years that uh, that was was the last time that i didn't go to brands hatch which was because i was away at boarding school uh, but it really is a is a strange one, and you'll notice that there's one circuit notably missing from that, which is Silverstone. I don't know about you, Paul, but I I never have that sort of nostalgic feeling about Silverstone that I would get at all sorts of other other circuits around the country. I, I think you're quite right because, and I always think that's because Silverstone has actually changed so much over the years. Mm. You know, yes, we've still got two or three of the corners, but you know, we, we, you know, I always used to love Bridge and watching the cars come through there, and that's just you know, you just drive over it going into the circuit, and no one goes anywhere near it anymore. And it is a circuit that has evolved hugely. But yes, I don't think it ever has quite that. Well, you know, you say to people we're going to Silverstone, and it's the circuit they've heard of, but uh, certainly not for me. It's uh, not in my top five, shall we say? No, I think I think that's right. And yes, of course, it's changed. Um, as, as I say, perhaps part of it is because I never had those warm, fuzzy feelings at Silverstone. I can remember the Silverstone six hour races, uh, which in my early days of going to Le Mans were always a prelude to Le Mans and billed as such. You know, the Le Mans warm up, uh, which were great and um and people like Jochen Mass and Derek Bell, um, John Fitzpatrick, um, all of whom we have interviewed on Historic Racing News during 2020. Uh, but that all of those sorts of things, yeah, I can look back on those warmly. But the place doesn't doesn't give me give me any nostalgic feelings at all, which I think is is a bit sh- a bit of a shame. But that's progress, I suppose. It is. I think we all have these sort of little list of our circuits. I've always got a soft spot for Thruxton purely because it's where I started working as a journalist and I was uh, motoring news as it was at the time in Autosports Man at Thruxton for a few years back in the 80s. So, uh, yeah, soft spot for Hampshire's finest. You see, that's, that's an odd one because I love Thruxton. I, I love it, not least of which because the race control building is emblazoned with historyracingnews.com. But, uh, but more to the point that I just love it as a circuit and the ambience. Strangely, I hardly ever went there as a kid. Uh, and I couldn't tell you why. Um, but it was not something that, that I did. But So I don't have... I don't have memories of Thruxton in the same way, but but I think it's a it's a fabulous place to be, and I and I love that. But I think we'll we'll look back on 2020 with um, with some some strange views. I think it would be wrong of us not to uh, to talk about 2020 without talking about the luckiest man of 2020, who is Romain Grosjean. I think if you looked, saw that accident live, which I probably most of us did, I was watching the Grand Prix, mm. um, you instantly thought, well, for you instantly thought that isn't good. But, you know, if you'd seen that 10 years ago, then there would have been a very different outcome. 
If you've enjoyed the show or if you haven't enjoyed the show, then please let us know at Hist Racing News or find us on Facebook, Historic Racing News. Um, you can go to our website, historicracingnews.com. Um, but for not only this episode, but also for 2020, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>